you have no control. I mean, when the plane's going down, it's going down. But the only thing you can control is your mind. So, you know, one of the things I learned from all my experiences, my 30, 40 plus years of experience doing whatever I'm doing is the person with the most certainty in a situation becomes the leader. It could be the lowest janitor, it could be the CEO, but if you give certainty to people, all of a sudden they look at you as being a leader. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an incredible guest to share with you today. Dave Sanderson is an inspirational survivor, speaker, and author. His thoughts on leadership have made him an internationally sought-out speaker. When U.S. Airways Flight 1549, also known as the Miracle on the Hudson, crashed into the Hudson River on January 15, 2009, Dave Sanderson knew exactly where he was supposed to be. The last passenger off the back of the plane on that fateful day, he was largely responsible for the well-being and safety of others, risking his own life in frigid water to help passengers off the plane. Despite the hazards to himself, Sanderson thought only of helping others and emerged from the wreckage with a mission to encourage others to do the right thing. Today, he travels the globe sharing his inspirational and motivational leadership messages to help people make a difference in the lives of how they do business and live their lives. Dave, welcome to the show. Doctor, I'm really excited to be with you today. Uh, we, your story is, is so interesting, and it's it's such a well-known, well-known incident, but it's so rare that we actually have somebody who has survived a, a plane crash, much less took an active role in helping others do the same. So talk to us a little bit uh, about what your life was like prior to U.S. Airways Flight 1549, and then we'll, we'll get into the miracle on the Hudson. Well, thank you, doctor. It's, uh, I had a 30-plus years sales and sales management career. I, after I graduated from college, I actually got into restaurant management because my father, who always lived up to his word, told me I had to be out of the house in 30 days, and I didn't have a job, and he found me a job in restaurant management. Uh, so it was, a, it was a great lesson in leadership, live up to your word, because he uh, he definitely lived up to his word. But uh, after traveling around in restaurants for a few years, my fiance really got tired of me going uh, further north. So that's why I started my sales career. So I was in sales and uh, sales management for 30-plus years. And then, uh, you know, about 2009 is when, when everything started to change. But I was still in sales. I was a, I was a in charge of the consumer package goods division for the Southeast for uh, Oracle. So I was traveling a lot in that, uh, in that line of business. And then you were on that fateful flight, flight 1549. So take us through what happened on that day, and, and then we'll go from there because it's such a powerful story. 
Well, I can tell people it's nothing extraordinary about today. It was 11 degrees and snowing, but you're in New York in the middle of the winter, so that's that's no big deal. And I was scheduled to be on the five o'clock flight that night because I was working in a distribution center in my job as a sales manager, and our day started at approximately 5 a.m., so we got done about 10. And I was at the end of a three-day business trip, so about 10 o'clock that morning, I called a travel agent. I worked with her, and she put me on flight 1549. And sort of the backstory is I had a first-class seat at 5 o'clock because I flew 100,000 miles a year, and I gave up that for seat 15A to be on 1549. So I, um, I, uh, I took an earlier flight just to get home early so I could be with my family and uh, nothing extraordinary boarding the plane, right? I was one of the first set of passengers aboard because of my status. And I just went back to my seat doctor and did exactly what I did every single time I did before. And, and I would say most people who are listening probably do right now. You just go back, you put your briefcase down, pull the magazine out, start to read. So I didn't pay attention to any instruction. I, I thought I knew everything. It's like most people do when they get on a plane. I've done this before. No big deal. Nothing's going to happen. But as we know, at that point, about 60 to 70 seconds after we took off, it's when I heard the explosion on the plane. I use the word explosion because it was like a big pow uh, when the bird struck the engines. And and the really the ironic thing, and what's, it's a one in a billion shot, is you know what happened on the left side of the plane where I was sitting also happened on the right side of the plane, and it happened simultaneously. And that's a one in a billion shot. You know, I think if, Doctor, if everybody were to heard a boom and a boom, then people said, uh-oh. We got a big problem, but we heard boom, and I think everybody who was looking out the window saw, you know, saw the fire coming out from underneath the wing. I said, "Okay, we have we lost an engine. We got another one. We'll go back. We're going back to the airport." So I think uh, that was one of the saving graces of that day. Wow! So if I understood you correctly, birds flew into both engines at the same time. At the at the same moment, that was that was what I think doesn't get played up enough. But I think, uh, you know, and it shows that I have a, I have a simulator that I show when I speak, and it shows it, and it's amazing because the birds come in in a V, and it hit the front of the plane first, and, of course, the outside of the outer birds came at the same time and hit it simultaneously. So how, how high up was the plane, do they know, when, when those birds hit the engine? Approximately 2,900 to 3,000 feet. Okay. So a, a long way down, to say the least. So take us through what happened next. Well, as I mentioned, I didn't. I didn't really think it was, wasn't startled too much. I thought, you know, we, I knew we lost an engine because I could see it out the window. It was on fire, but you know, like everybody else, I think on that plane, we got another engine, and I felt him banking. So I just thought he was going back to LaGuardia. You know, I've been in situations before in a plane where they have to return for whatever reason, a medical, whatever reason. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But instead of banking back towards LaGuardia, he was banking back towards the Hudson River and. And until he crossed the George Washington Bridge, and he only cleared the bridge by approximately 400 feet, and the bridge is approximately 600 feet up. So by that time, he had he was about a thousand plus feet. So when I when we crossed over the George Washington Bridge, I looked out the window, and you could see people's faces looking up at you. And you said, oh, I, "That's my." I said, "Oh, we're pretty close." And that's when he came on and said his famous words: "This is your captain, brace for impact." And he used the word dire in his interviews. I used the word serious. I'll use his word because it's more impactful. But it was a pretty serious situation at that point. Because at that point, when he said that, I think everybody thought that uh, all you could see is water and we're going down fast. And candidly, I'd never seen a plane crash up close and or a plane crash who went into the water that survived. So at that moment, what were the thoughts going right through your head? Were you thinking, I'm going to die? This is it? Or, or what happened there? Well, the first thing I did is I prayed. 
Uh, I prayed for three things. First is whoever that captain was, man, just get me down in one piece. At least if I was going to not come back, at least want to be in one one, one unit. Uh, the second thing I prayed is the last person I spoke with, who was my client up in Brooklyn, to call my wife and let her know that I loved her. And the third thing I prayed to God to forgive my sins because Canley, I don't anything between God and me at that point. We're going down. I wanted to go up, and it wasn't looking really good. So uh, that was the first thing I did. But after I got done praying and I put my wallet down into my pants because I wanted ID on me just in case something happened, I couldn't was not coming back or I couldn't communicate. At least I know who I was. But I tell people that last moment, so it was about 60 seconds after he crossed over the bridges. That's one of those surreal moments in your life because what happened to me, and I talked to some other passengers who had a very similar experience, is that you, you really see your, your the movie of your life pass before your eyes. You see things with clarity from 30, 40 years ago that you hadn't seen in that long. It's like all of a sudden you're seeing the movie of your life, and all of a sudden you start getting clarity of what your life is all about. And it was, you know, the last thing I thought about before the impact was I hope my wife pays off the mortgage because I knew if I died, she'd have to be a multimillionaire in Canada. She could afford to pay off the mortgage. And that was one of the goals we made when we first got married is we didn't, we want to go without a mortgage at least once in our life. So, and then uh, that's when we impacted on, on the river. So from the impact to, uh, of the birds until the, the plane crashing in the river, about how long was that? The entire flight was approximately six minutes. So if you look at the 60, 70 seconds up front, uh, it was approximately four and a half to five minutes from bird strike to impact. So then the plane goes down and then you're alive. You, you realize you're alive. So to take us through what happens next. Well, you realize you're alive. I went back in my seat and up in my seat, uh, you know, and I, because of the impact. He he hit, he estimates he hit. And I, of course, I don't know if he knows for sure, but I'm sure he knows pretty close between 100, 120 miles an hour. So it was a hard hit. When I came back up, I saw light out the window. So I knew I was alive. But at that point, if, if you saw any, if you've seen any of the of the video from the plane hitting the river, the bottom of the plane was stripped off as on, on impact. And then somebody actually did listen to the flight crew and went to that closest exit behind you. And somebody tried to open up that door and, you know, they did exactly what they were actually, someone read the instructions, right? I mean, they did what they were told to do, but that's not what you do when you're in the water. Of course, no one knew at that point what was going on. So water started coming into plane from the bottom and the back immediately. So immediately when I, when I stood up to get to the aisle, water was at our level about, about knee to waist deep. The front of the plane was more towards ankle deep. The back of the plane was more towards waist deep. And I was off, I was in C-15A, so somewhere between knees and waist, water was immediately. And this is in January, so the so that water's got to be painfully freezing. 36 degrees. Yeah. 36 degrees, and there was ice floating in the river. In fact, when the plane impacted, it actually broke up the ice in the river. So at that point, you know, water's you're you're alive. You know water's flowing in. It's it's knee to waist deep. You had to make a snap decision. What was the decision you made? Well, candidly, my first thought was aisle up out because that's what my game. I had to get a game plan, and my game plan, you know, all because part of my training, doctor, was I for ten years I was with uh, on the security team and head of security for Tony Robbins. And one of the things I always was doing as a director of security, especially, I had to make a game plan for exit strategies. You know, in case something happened. So my exit strategy was aisle up out. But when I got to the aisle, something happened. No one changed that day in my strategy, but changed my entire direction. Is is my mother started talking to me in my head, and my mother had passed away in 1997. 
But there was something she would tell me when I was a child is this came to me at that moment. It was, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And she still left the decision with me and what I heard. So my decision was, yeah, I knew I was alive, but I took it the other direction, went towards the back of the plane, see if anybody else needed help. And I got behind everybody. And once we got everybody started going out, I started making my way out of the plane. And so how many people were able to make it off the plane? Well, it was a hundred percent of the people made it off the plane and, you know, and from the back of the plane, you know, I was walking behind people. It was way steep in water. And one of the things that, you know, happens on, on impact is not only some of the seats sort of reflex back, but the bins had broken open and luggage has flown out and you're waist deep in the water. So as I was going up, you know, you felt luggage or something hitting you. So all the further I could get up, the first light that I saw was a 10F on the exit door on the right. So when I started getting out, everybody else was out. So I started to get out like everybody else on the wing. But as soon as I got there in the window and the exit door, I looked out and there was no room on the wing or the boat for me. So I was inside the plane waist deep in 36 degree water for about seven minutes holding on to the lifeboat so it didn't float away. And so everybody makes it off this plane and and you helped these people get to safety. Talk to us about what life was like for you after that. Well, once I got to the hospital, I had hypothermia. So I stayed the night in the hospital and I got recovered. You know, when I got back uh, to Charlotte, where I lived, Kaylee, I didn't know if my company knew that I'd been in anything because I hadn't heard anything from my company. So I went by the office and, and, you know, I was asked if I was going to go to Michigan the following week on a business trip and I made a decision to go. So, you know, I was in sales and sales management and sort of it's, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to say no. And then let somebody else sort of take control. So I did that. But then all of a sudden I had the media was all, it was immediate, not only on my family, but for me. And so I had media following me pretty much for the next week from wherever I was, whether I was going to church, whether I was going to business, whether whatever I was doing. And I was trying to get my life back together, trying to keep, you know, be with my family. My company still uh, wanted my time. So I was still working. I didn't have a PC, so I had to get a loaner PC. So I was just trying to get back to some kind of semblance for that next week and still do the work, still do my commitments with Tony and still I was doing media and trying to be with my family. So it was pretty hectic that next week. Was there a point where you realized that the work you were doing was something you had to transition out of? Well, I knew candidly, doctor, once my, one of my managers, my regional manager asked me if I was going to Michigan the following week, that uh, I realized I was just a number. Right. And there's great people at Oracle. I mean, beautiful people. I love, Kaylin, I like the company. I love the people, but I knew I was a number. If I would have passed away, they would have put another person in that seat the next day and gone on with business because that's what you do. I have no hold, hold no ill will. It's just how it was done. So once I realized that, I'm like, I've got to get an exit strategy to get out of here. Because one of the um, things that uh, being with Tony as long as I was, and when I was picking him up at the... Uh, helipad or airport every time we'd pick him up pick him up he'd ask me the same questions like why are you still working for that same company and what are you what are you going to do to get out and start your own company do your own thing and now was sort of the entree the opportunity to do that but i still didn't know how to do it so fortunately for me tony took me under his wing and sort of guided me and gave me some strategies on how to start making that transition and it took me a couple years because you can make the transition pretty quickly candidly but the big thing was is getting my wife to buy in because my wife's whole worldview, and I realized this after the plane crash, was she lived on certainty. And she still does. 
I mean, we've, we've always had a job, right? We've had health insurance and all these things. And you're, it's like, you're going to do what now? You're going to go on your own with no life insurance, no, no health insurance. And, and we have no income coming. And it's like, so I was rocking her world, right? So I had, it took me a few years to figure out how to give her certainty to do this. So I had to give her, show her that by doing what I was doing and, and, um, going out speaking and helping supporting people in the Red Cross and things so she could see that I could actually pull it off. So that was, it took me a few years to figure that strategy out, but I finally got to that point. So once you got her to that point and you were able to walk away from Oracle, there was no looking back for you. No, I, you know, one of the things that Tony taught me, and I think it's true, once you make a decision, you got to burn the boats and, you know, you go all in. And so I did, I went all in and candidly, it wasn't a smooth transition. Everybody says, wow, you got, you had a story and a platform. This, But, you know, I was really good at one thing. I was good at sales. I wasn't very good at administration. So all the things you have to do in a business like, uh, you know, accounts payables, receivables, you know, paying people. Those things I wasn't very good at, so it was a huge learning curve for me. But yet you've transitioned into a very, very well-known and successful speaker. You've been everywhere in, in pretty much every media outlet that there is. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. We'll be right back to our interview after this. Hey, Daily Helping listeners, Dr. Richard here, and I am so excited to share with you something that we've been working on for the past 18 months. Introducing personal helping, which we created because everybody struggles with something. Want to lose weight, improve your relationships, or overcome long-standing obstacles? Then you need personal helping to smash your goals. Personal helping utilizes a system developed by myself and my team of behavioral science experts, which incorporates the principles of neuroscience as well as technology. While personal helping is not therapy or medical advice, our personal helpers provide a unique perspective and accountability which can reinvigorate your life. Personal helping sessions are conducted in real time via video conference on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Go to thedailyhelping.com and then the personal helping section where you can download the Daily Helping app and sign up for your first session today. And now, back to the show. When you speak to corporations and people, you talk about some of these experiences that you've had and, you know, these decisions you, you made. And you talked about when you were on the plane and you, you know, heard that little voice in your head. It was your mother speaking to you, you know, about, <clears throat> about doing something. So from your perspective, and this is, you know, I'm asking this to, to apply this to the general population, to people listening to this. When a person is faced with a decision to leave or stay, how do you make the decision to do the right thing? Yeah, I appreciate that question because I think, yeah, I get that question a lot. 
And I, one of the great—I would go back. And one of the great things about my mother, a doctor, was she really never told me what to do. She would give me the choice and make me make choices and make decisions. And I think that's one of the challenges all of us as parents have right now, and I, including myself, um, is that uh, we don't challenge our kids enough to make decisions so they can make the, the wrong decisions so they can learn from that. So fortunately for me. My mother would always allow me, and probably my brother and sister likewise, to make decisions. And yeah, some most of the time, you know, they may have not have been right, but I learned from them. So when it came down to doing the right thing for me, I had a value set that I was I I really had a I could reference going back many years from you know when I was a youth and Boy Scouts and you know you know leadership positions in high school and teams and things I did all the athletics I did. So being able to make the right decision, I think, comes down to your value set and having those reference bases to be able to call upon. And you know, I talked to when I talked to businesses, and one of the things I talked about in my TED talk, bouncing back, was one of the ways you can do that is you know you, now you you have references, but now you have so many virtual references you can call upon. I mean, with access to the internet and having access to the social media, you can get a hold of anybody and learn anybody's story. So. When tough times come to make a decision, you can actually call call back to those virtual references. And say, okay, how did this this lady or this gentleman make the decision? They did. So maybe give me another point of reference. That was actually, I, I think you beat me to the punch. My follow up question was going to be: if a person didn't have those value anchors like you had with your mom growing up, how do you find those? But you just, you know, you brought up a really interesting point in saying that in this era of social media and with the internet that we can connect with anybody and learn from other people's experiences, which is really awesome. Yeah, I think that's, uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of things about the internet and social media that you know, are derogatory, but one of the things I've really learned and I, and I call upon is being able to, if I, need to, if I need to learn something, like how do I learn to do accounts receivables and payables? I had no clue. So I went to yeah you know, I went out on the internet saw how do these people do it and I learned very quickly where now I should be reading more but I don't have time to read the books like I used to so I got to be able to get the information quick and now we have access to that information very quickly. Wonderful and, and something else that that I wanted to ask you and you know clinically certainly when a person experiences trauma not every time but oftentimes they suffer post traumatic stress. So everybody's reaction to a stressor and how they come out of it on the back end is different. But for you, you experienced something that many people would be psychologically damaged from, and you experienced growth. Talk to us about that. That's really interesting. Yes, thank you, doctor. That's one of my passions right now to be able to speak about that. That's why I did my TED Talk. Uh, up in Kingston, Ontario, Queen's University, because I felt so passionate about this. And I didn't really, really realize that until I was approached by AARP Magazine, and they wanted to interview me. And Kaylee, I didn't know why they wanted to interview me. I was doing a lot of interviews. I still do a lot of interviews. But, uh, you know, I thought, I thought I was too young for it anyway, right? I mean, I'm not that old. AARP, <laughs> what, you know, what can I teach somebody who's 50-plus years old, right? But then what they told me is that they realized and they found out that I helped the American Red Cross raise at that point over $8.5 million. And they wanted to understand the strategies I use, why so many other people on the plane and other people who went through what I call personal plane crashes in their life went the other direction. And as we saw in the movie Sully, we talked a little bit about that. You know, Captain Sullenberger had PTSD as he was going through his his metamorphosis towards the, at the end of the uh, at the end of the situation. So I, I agreed to do this interview, and they shared a term called post-traumatic growth syndrome. And I never heard about it, 
But uh, they explained it to me. They went, and I started sharing the strategies I did to grow from this traumatic life event that go into a depressed state. And so they wrote this up in AARP magazine, and I started getting questions about it. And so I was uh, asked to do a TED Talk up in Kingston, Ontario, Queens, and I shared the strategies I used to grow from a traumatic life event. And of course, the 17 minutes, you got to get it down pretty quick. So it wasn't, uh, you know, it was, I didn't get everything in, but that's how, how I, I started talking about how passionate I am because what I'm finding out, doctor, and you probably see this in what you do. And especially right now, I talk to a lot of sheriffs and a lot of law enforcement and some, I used to do a lot more military, but uh, who people who are going through those traumatic life events, whether it's, you know, uh, shooting or coming back from the war or they, you know, talking to a lady up in Canada who survived, you know, the avalanche over, you know, Mount Everest a few years ago. She's still going through the challenges. And I share with them the strategies I used and hopefully help them get to a better place. Something you said that really piqued my interest is you used the phrase personal plane crashes. Dave, talk to us about what you mean by that. And I was just, I, one day, doctor, I was just, I was speaking, I forget where it was. And someone asked me a question. I said, I, I said, I think everybody in life has their own personal plane crash. And they looked at me, I was like, yeah, I said, I said people, you know, one day and everybody's going to have one. No one gets through life unscathed. And I said, you know, it's either the fire or a flood or a health scare or cancer or something is going to happen in your life. And it's those personal plane crashes in your life is how do you respond to it? And, and you can actually grow from those personal plane crashes. And that's how this whole thing about personal plane crashes came, because all of a sudden I started realizing, yeah, you could be the queen of England, or you could be the guy who's you know cleaning the, the toilet at, at midnight. Everybody's going to have something in their life. No one gets through life unscathed. Mine was a visual plane crash. So that gives me a meta- metaphor for you know going through something that's tragic and potentially life-threatening and being able to survive and thrive and grow from it. And that's how, that's how that came about. Makes perfect sense. And then in terms of, so not only in terms of personal plane crashes, but as it relates to that, that day on, in January of 2009, when the plane went down, talk to us about how leadership plays a role in, you know, in your instance, helping all of those people off of the plane, but, you know, for everybody else, be that in their personal life or, or in an entrepreneurial role, how does leadership help us get through those personal plane crashes? Well, so, well, thank you. Because you know, one of the things I write about in my book, Moments Matters, about that topic, I talked only about leadership, but what, why when all stuff's breaking loose and you have you have no control over the situation? And that's one thing you learn, doctor, and when you go in a plane crash or any traumatic life event, you have no control. I mean, when the plane's going down, it's going down. But the only thing you control is your mind. So you know, one of the things I learned from all my experiences, my 30, 40 plus years of experience doing whatever I'm doing, is the person with the most certainty in a situation becomes a leader. It could be the lowest janitor, or it could be the CEO, but if you give certainty to people, all of a sudden they look at you as being a leader. And on the plane that day and I, I, during the rescue, what I think I was able to do with my experiences, I was, be able, was able to give people certainty in that time, whether it was the lady who was standing in the middle of the wing with her baby or the people on the lifeboat. or you know. And one of the things you learn about leadership, especially in a time like that, is sometimes you don't have all the answers. And one of the things I learned is you, you know, sometimes it's better to check your ego at the door and let somebody else who has a better skill set. So part of leadership in, in a situation, especially like that, is you know giving certainty, but also allowing people to do what they do best. And that's what happened that day. And I referenced back to my time when I escorted General Norman Schwarzkopf back in 1999 and had a personal one-on-one with him that day. And I asked him questions, and he was telling me his th- philosophy on leadership. And I learned that 
And I remembered that. And uh, fortunately for me, I got to uh, act, actually employ that uh, in a very visual way. And hopefully giving certainty is uh, one of the strategies that I use when I get into those tough times to say, if I give people certainty and show certainty in myself, at least they'll, they'll, they'll look that we have an opportunity to to, uh, to survive. Very, very well said. And you, you, you touched on Moments Matter, but I certainly want to take some time and talk about the book. So tell us about you know, Moments Matter overall and, and what people will get out of reading this book, which has been so well-received internationally. Well, I appreciate that because how the book came about, I'll just give a quick background how the book came about. I was um, probably six or seven years ago this happened. I, we have a couple neighbors down the street, two elderly ladies, and, you know, they always call us and they have a challenge. And, you know, and what are you going to do? You're a neighbor, right? You're going to go help your fellow neighbor. And I got called one day, probably now six, about eight years ago now, by one of them that said, can you help us fix our TV? No, I'm pretty good at TVs, right? So I walked down the street and helped these two ladies with their TV, and I got a fix, which wasn't difficult. They said, can you stay for milk and cookies? And who's not going to stay for milk and cookies from two older ladies who know how to make milk and cookies, right? So I'm sitting there as I'm waiting and looking at their at their table, and they have books on this table. So I start flipping through the books, and all of a sudden I'm seeing pictures of concentration camps. And I love history especially World War II history. So I asked them, I said, well, where the, where'd you get these pictures? And both of them op- pulled up their sleeves and showed me they're inside their forearms. They had numbers on them. Mm. And that's when I realized they were excuse me, in a concentration camp. So I said, please let me record this story because they're 80 years old. I mean, they may not be around much longer. These, all these stories have to be recorded. And they would never let me say, no, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. So fast forward, my former assistant one day called me and said, listen, you know, you need to put this on audio so even your grandkids and great-grandkids, when you're not here, can hear it from your voice. What happened that day? So we took about nine hours of audio recording from moment of that day started to when I got back to Charlotte and thereafter. And we decided, wow, we got this is a lot of material. We got some some really good information here. We said, there's there's a book here. So what are we going to call it? And I said, well, I just came up one day we were talking. I said, one thing I realized through all this is all those moments in my life I didn't, didn't think it mattered really did matter. Because all those things led up to the point where I was able to, to survive that day. And all of a sudden, the book Moments Matter came, and, and we started breaking down the, the lessons and strategies, these 12, what I call the 12 resources to create your own flight plan. And I wrote about these 12 resources I used that day, and you can use in business or personal life to, to grow, th- survive, thrive, and grow. And that's how the book came about, and all of a sudden, it took off. And you know, we had to get it out quickly, so I self-published it. I didn't really wait around. Uh, the first book that I was involved with called Brace Race for Impact. We did that, and it took about, about six months to get it going. So I said, I don't want to wait. So uh, we got it out, and it's been so well-received all over the world, and I'm really just I'm honored to be able to share that. Wonderful. And so if we will have links to your book in the Daily Helping show notes and the Daily Helping app so that anybody listening to this can get their hands on that book for sure. I appreciate that. Thank you. And we're, we're getting pretty close to the end, but I, I really wanted to circle back around and, and ask you a question because you've mentioned – Tony a couple of times and some, and some things that Tony Robbins has taught you, but I, I'm curious specifically, what skills or training did you have in sales and in being Tony Robbins' security director that you were really able to put into place and implement on that final day on the Hudson? Well, there, thank you for asking that, Dr. There's two really strategies that I, I learned and I aptly implemented that day. First was and he talks about state management, how to control your mind, right? And so, like I mentioned, you, one thing you realize when you're going down a plane crash in that last moment, you have no control. Only you can control is your mind. So I put myself in the proper state. 
And, you know, and so he teaches how to do that. And I couldn't jump up and down like you do at his seminars, right? I mean, you can't get up on a plane and start jump up and down when you're going down in a plane crash. So I used internal dialogue. I started asking myself different questions, saying, this is my strategy. This is what we're going to do if I survive. So I used internal dialogue to manage my state. But the second strategy that I used, and I used it probably three or four times, is sensory acuity, being able to communicate with other people in the modality that they were residing in. And there were people there who were you know, either a visual, auditory, or kinesthetic communicators. And candidly, at that point, a lot of people are so in, locked in their state because they're in a, a traumatic situation. I had, I'm a visual talker, as you could probably tell, but I was talking to a lot of people who were audio. So I had to really change my modality to be able to communicate in their, in their situation. That happened with, I can give you one instance where there's a lady standing on the wing with a baby and she was in a trance. She didn't know what to do. And I yelled at her and got her attention to basically throw her baby. And I knew that she wasn't going to throw her baby. But one thing I did learn from Tony is if you got, if you got somebody in that situation where they're in that trance, and you got to do something radical to break them out. And throwing somebody's baby is probably pretty radical, especially when, when all stuff's breaking loose. I got her attention and somebody else helped her get her baby and get her off, off the wing. And so the skill sets of state management and using sensory acuity, probably the two key things that I use during, uh, during the plane going down and the rescue. I love what you shared. And it is something that you know, I wish we had more time to talk about sensory acuity and all of these these things. Perhaps we'll, we'll do this again sometime, but love to. One of the things that, as you know, I like to do is I, I wrap up my show by asking every guest who comes on, what is their biggest helping? And that is the single most important piece of information for somebody to walk away with after listening to this episode today. Oh, I appreciate that, Doctor. It's one thing to always sort of rely on, and it serves always serves me. It's everything happens for a reason and a purpose, and it serves me. You know, I, it could be positive or negative, but I'll try to learn something from everything that I do so I can hopefully apply it to a more positive effect the next way I do something. So everything happens for a reason and a purpose, and it does serve me. Wonderful. Dave, where can people find you? Uh, thank you. So my website is davesandersonspeaks.com. I don't have an assistant now, doctor, so they can get right to me. That's the easiest way. They can check out some things that we're doing. Uh, also on Facebook, my page is Dave Sanderson Speaks. That's where I sort of give some of these strategies that I've ta- been talking about. And on Twitter, it's Dave Sanderson, too. And those are basically those quick clips. But LinkedIn under David Sanderson is where I give some of these, really go in depth on these strategies and share those things. But one of the things I'm really excited about right now is I, I've been selected. I got approved to do a daily flash briefing on Amazon. So if you have an Amazon product, if you don't, you can go on my website under my blog, and it's called Dave Sanderson Declassified. And I take all these strategies that I've learned and talked about and break it down within five minutes, the strategies, so you can sort of take that away in a five-minute format. This strategies for this day, you can do, you can take these actions, and you'll be able to get to hopefully the same outcome if you mirror that. So that's uh, that's how you can get a hold of me. And I like to offer your audience if they if they text seven nine seven nine seven nine and put the word brace the number four impact, I will send them the first video of my new uh, upcoming course. It's called Overcoming Adversity in Challenging Times as as a gift as to say thank you for listening in today. Wonderful. So we no worries about scrambling for pens or paper. We will have everything that Dave just said linked in the show notes at thedailyhelping.com for this episode as well as on the Daily Helping app. Terrific. Well, Dave, thanks so much for being here today. It was outstanding getting a chance to talk to you. 
Same here, Doctor. I hope we have a chance to do it again. Absolutely. And thanks to each and every one of you who tuned in to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because that's what helps other people find this podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 